ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show lined up. Joining me will be both Jan Van Eck, CEO of Top 10 ETF issuer Van Eck, and Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale Investments, the world's largest digital asset manager. Now, originally, the three of us were scheduled to be in Florida today attending Inside ETFs, and we were actually going to do this podcast live on the main stage at that conference. However, we all know uh, COVID's had other plans. Unfortunately, that conference was canceled. And so we had to uh, enact Plan B, which isn't the worst option in the world. Uh, Jan and Dave have kindly agreed to uh, join me remotely today. The topic, though, is one of my absolute favorites. You already know what it is, Bitcoin ETFs. We are going to discuss the entire state of Bitcoin ETFs, the regulatory side, where things currently stand, why Bitcoin ETFs are needed. We'll discuss all of it. And quite honestly, I'm not sure I could think of two better people to cover this. I mean, you look at Van Eck, they currently have two live Bitcoin ETF filings with the SEC. They also have an Ethereum ETF filing. They've been working on this for a long time. And then Grayscale offers the very popular Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC. This has nearly $30 billion invested in it. Uh, they publicly stated that they're 100% committed to converting this into an ETF. And I feel like this entire story around Bitcoin ETFs has become even more interesting over the past couple of months because we're getting a lot more messaging out of the SEC regarding crypto regulation. Now, from my standpoint... It seems like SEC Chair Gary Gensler is getting much more aggressive on the regulatory front. Uh, whether that's good or bad for crypto probably depends on how you view things. I view it as a negative in terms of Bitcoin ETF prospects, at least for a physical Bitcoin ETF. But 
I can't wait for this conversation. Uh, Jan and Dave will cover everything you want to know on this topic. And yes, I will press them for formal predictions on when, if ever, Bitcoin ETFs get approved. Now, to start this week, I have Tom Leiden on the line with me. Tom, of course, is founder and CEO of ETF Trends. I want to find out if he panic sold his investments last week following this uh, ever grand news. So let's do that now. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, thanks for joining me this week. Great to be back. Thanks, Nate. So look, I don't usually get uh, hung up on day-to-day -day market events, but it's become more apparent to me that anytime there's a headline news event, like some seemingly bad news that investors haven't fully digested, all of these negative Nellies come out of the woodwork and start proclaiming that uh, it, it's 2008 all over again. Uh, you know, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's the uh, canary in the coal mine. And I'm not saying investors shouldn't pay attention to uh, events like Evergrande, and we can certainly talk about that situation. But you look last Monday and stocks fell, what, 2%? It's a blip, but you would have thought it was the end of the world with the way the media covered this. We had perma bears doing victory laps. I, I don't know. Do you agree or am I just uh, following the wrong people on Twitter or something? <laughs> well, you and I do that for entertainment and, and a little bit of education, Nate, but we also both manage money. And if we reacted every time something like this came up, uh, we probably wouldn't have our asset management businesses, right? So long term, if you look at China and what's going on, the same story continues. Uh, it's a huge player in the marketplace. It's not going away. There's always going to be saber rattling between the U.S. and China. However, its growth prospects continue to be on the right side. We are, you know, looking at, uh, you know, for example, the average um, citizen in China has most of their wealth tied up in real estate. So this is a little bit of a concern. However, there's a pretty big backstop over there in China in the Chinese government. So things do continue to go south. Uh, they probably indicated early that they'll be there to support it. Uh, I think that this is one. This Evergrande situation is something that we want to be aware of. Does it mean that you sell all your China holdings? Absolutely not. What, what do you make of investor psychology, though? Because I've wondered if, because stocks have had such a great run over the past decade plus, there's this assumption that we have to get a crash, right? Something bad has to happen, whether it's Evergrande or, or something else. I feel like 2008 permanently scarred some investors where. There's this thought there's a boogeyman always right around the corner. But even then, you look, and we've had some pretty decent pullbacks along the way. Last year, of course, we had a 34% drop in the S&P 500. There was a 20% decline back in the fourth quarter of 2018. There have been points where the market's gone down fairly substantially. But to, to me, something psychologically seems different or, or broken, where every little 2% market drop is like the, the the next layman brothers. And, you know, both of us, I, I know you do a lot of financial media. I've done some financial media. There's a lot of positives there for sure. But I, I also think it's clear financial media is part of the problem. 
And I, I saw there was a great uh, little blog last week from Barry Ritholtz where he made a, a basic, but I thought it was a, a great point, which is that these financial media outlets have 12 plus hours a day to fill, which is a lot of airtime. And what's the saying in the news? Uh, if it bleeds, it leads, right? I think, unfortunately, that's a metaphor for financial media as well. And Barry said, you know, investors have to determine for themselves what's truly relevant to their long-term portfolio holdings. But do, do you think something is psychologically different between an investor now and, and perhaps back prior to 2008? Oh, well, emotions always play a big role, Nate. And, and you know, um, emotions also sell a lot of advertising. So if you've got to fill 12 hours of real estate every day, uh, you can't talk about long-term investing every hour uh, that you're putting information out there to investors. You have to dig down deep. You have to talk about the good and the bad and the ugly. That's what people are looking for. Um, they're, they're looking for the sizzle. And uh, most of the networks are giving it to them. Uh, at the same time, I think what you and I try to do is touch on these areas, but at the same time reinforce the importance of long-term investing, diversification, low cost, and also opportunities. You know, when you talk about China, you and I have talked about this before, and you look at the uh, online internet uh, Chinese ETF, KWeb, it's a huge amount of inflow after the recent decline. And it's continued to do so. So what does that mean? Um, is that retail money? Is it institutional money? Uh, you talk to the folks at Crane Shares, it's a little bit of both. Are they wrong? Who knows? Uh, but at this point in time, those big declines, and we always look for them, are buying opportunities. But if you look back, and, and those of us that went through the financial crisis, it was a lot deeper than many of us thought. And uh, sure, surely caused some nail-biting as well, right? No, 100%. And I, I guess I'll just add to this that, and, and you may have seen this chart I tweeted out last week. I love this chart from JP Morgan, where they show the gain in the S&P 500 every year. And then they also show the largest drawdown. And the key stat here is since 1980, so over the past 40 plus years, which, which I got to say, I, I feel old now, but since 1980, the average intra-year decline for the S&P 500 is 14.3%. In other words, it is normal for stocks to go down, whether it be of 10, 15, 20%. That's normal, which I think gets lost sometimes. And then I also saw a tweet from uh, Charlie Bellello over at Compound Capital Advisors. He said that 20% drawdowns happen every four years on average, and 30% drawdowns every nine years on average. And I know it sounds cliche, but it reminds me of the old uh, Jack Bogle quote, where he said, if you have trouble imagining a 20% loss in the stock market, you shouldn't be in stocks. And I would say that applies to a 30% loss or a 40% loss. I, I just think, you know, keeping perspective is, is obviously important. And again, I know it's cliche, but if you're an investor in stocks and focusing on the long term, you're going to have these, these ups and downs. And I would say even going back to what ended up being a historic down move last March, where the S&P was down that 34% in a very short amount of time, if you did not overreact to that, obviously you're well ahead of where you were before that. Stocks are up over 40% since the beginning of 2020. And you know, with these perma bears out there, let's just say 
back at that time, the perma bearers were right. I'm not saying they saw a pandemic coming, but whatever. Let's just say they were right. Stocks finally dropped 35%. Well, guess what? Again, the market is higher now. And I, I guess my point, Tom, is that I'm not saying the market's always going to go up in a straight line. You and I both know that's that's never the case. There have been plenty of, of long stretches where the market was actually flat. But to me, again, it comes down to investor behavior and, and whether you really believe you can time these things. One other piece of advice would be this. Uh, we have a home country bias here in the U.S. We tend to be overweighted in uh, U.S. equities. And at the same time, we've seen more corrections outside the U.S. than we've seen inside the U.S. What that brings us is better, more attractive valuations in areas like developed countries and emerging markets. Take this opportunity when we've seen these corrections to rebalance your portfolio so when these markets do come back, you're more diversified. I know it's difficult to buy areas that aren't performing as well as the U.S., but we know that especially areas like emerging markets provide greater long-term opportunities for growth. So it's worth taking advantage of it. Make these corrections, make the, this correction in China work in your advantage. And it doesn't mean that you have to pick lows, but it's a lot better than buying when it's at a high, right? No, for sure. And I guess in terms of this Evergrande situation specifically, and you touched on this a little bit, and by the way, for anyone who hasn't followed this, Evergrande is a Chinese property developer. They took on massive amounts of debt that it now looks like they can't repay. I believe they have liability somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 billion. But the concern is this could cause a ripple effect within China's economy because real estate is such a big part. And then ultimately that could spread more broadly, spread globally. Any color you would add to that, Tom? And, and, and by the way, I don't want to talk out of both sides here, right? On, on one hand, we're telling investors to ignore these, these short-term events. On the other, we're saying pay attention. To be clear, my belief with stuff like this is to be educated. Understand what's going on. Doesn't mean to sell out of all your stocks. But anything you would add just as it pertains to the Evergrande situation? We'll just set the boundaries. You know, a lot of people have been talking about a, a default situation that would be pretty chaotic or that the government comes in and completely bails them out. It's probably going to be neither. It's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. And when you talk to people in the know, that sounds about right. So already, Nate, from this news coming out a week ago, uh, it's already now gone to the third page in the New York Times. So now, with it being less concerning, how does that affect your portfolio? Do you have to react to it? Are you going to be emotional about it? Does it provide a buying opportunity? All those things. I mean, don't ignore it. But uh, I think as we go on, it's not going to be as worse as, as bad as it seems. Well, and so just to be clear, you mentioned KWeb earlier. How do you think investors should approach China ETFs right now, or even ETFs with significant China exposure, some of the broad-based emerging market ETFs? Should they be scared or concerned, not just because of the Evergrande situation, but you and I, it was like a month or two ago, we talked about the regulatory crackdown we've seen from the Chinese government with IPOs and, and those sorts of things. Does anything change here? Does it get back to, to what we talked about then, which is just make sure you understand the type of China exposure you have in a portfolio? Well, that's right. Um, uh, KWeb and MCHI are completely different ETFs. You know, MCHI is more uh, cap-weighted. You've got a lot of government ownership in those companies. It's one of the biggest ETFs. It's more diversified, but you have to understand what you own. 
With K-Web, more internet access, it tends to be that the government in China has less ownership and less influence on those types of companies as well. I mean, I, I would say if you want China exposure, having a little bit of both makes a heck of a lot of sense. But it's definitely not two flavors of peanut butter. It's peanut butter and jelly. And I'll just add from my perspective with the way that, that we approach China, I think it's really tough handicapping what the Chinese government will do. Uh, again, they have everything on puppet strings over there. There is a lack of transparency, so I think it's very difficult to gauge. Now, on the other hand, China is the world's second largest economy. And I don't think an investor can just ignore that. That doesn't mean you absolutely have to own China in a portfolio, but it is possible you could miss out on some returns if you don't. So I think, you know, for an investor, you have to decide whether that's a risk you, you want to take. But this will be a, an interesting situation to watch going forward. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the, head, on the head. I don't see this Evergrande situation as some big straw that breaks the camel's back, but it's something that you do want to pay attention to. Um, Tom, just a few minutes left. I, I want to switch gears. As you heard at the top, I'll be visiting here in just a moment with Jan Van Eck and uh, Dave Lavelle on the state of Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, which, by the way, on the note of China, we got this news Friday that they're cracking down on crypto. The uh, People's Bank of China said all crypto-related activities are illegal, and the Chinese government overall has been pretty negative towards crypto for a while now. But uh, we're not sure exactly how the U.S. is going to approach this space longer term. Uh, I feel like the SEC is getting much more aggressive. I, I think Gensler is making up for lost time because the prior SEC administration in, in my view, did not take crypto seriously enough. And so Gensler's having to play catch up here. But clearly, whether it's Gensler or the prior administration, it's been a, a t uphill climb to get a Bitcoin ETF approved. You and I have not talked about this topic before. I'm just curious, do you have any strong views? Are you a Bitcoin ETF proponent? Do you care? Do you not care? Where, where do you land on this topic? Yeah, absolutely a proponent. Uh, now with the overall market value of Bitcoin and Ethereum crossing the trillion dollars, we're a little bit behind this. I am encouraged that uh, Gensler is signaling that a futures-based ETF in a 40-act wrapper makes sense. And uh, I'm actually hearing some whispering, Nate, that it could happen as early as the third week in October. Now, I'm not willing to bet a steak dinner. I'd maybe bet some street tacos with you on this. <laughs> but it, it's one of those things that eventually is going to come. And um, as you'll hear from David and Jan, which both are real experts on the space and surely motivated, it would be nice to have choice. And, and it, usually in investing and usually in ETFs, it's about choice. So having a futures-based strategy come out first um, – and not having a physical-backed or uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum-backed strategy being able to be in the offering when they, there, there's been years and years of applications into the SEC on this. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that. However, at least if we get some real uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum futures-based strategies on the books, that would be positive and hopefully the physical-backed would follow.
No, I agree with that. Um, it looks like the futures-based products are going to be the first step to the SEC getting comfortable around this product and then perhaps move to physical. Uh, you know where I stand on this. I believe a physical Bitcoin ETF would work just fine. Um, and with the concerns that the SEC has stated previously, there's nothing different inherently be between a futures-based ETF and a, and a physical, you know, quote-unquote physical Bitcoin ETF in terms of the way the product would function. But uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, Tom, excellent stuff as always. Appreciate the time. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. That was Tom Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I am now joined by two individuals who I would say you would be hard-pressed to find two better-situated people to discuss the entire state of Bitcoin ETFs. They are the tip of the spear in trying to bring Bitcoin ETFs to market. Now on the line with me is Jan Van Eck, CEO of ETF issuer Van Eck. Of course, a top 10 ETF issuer. Notably, they have two live Bitcoin ETF filings with the SEC. One is a quote-unquote physical Bitcoin ETF. The other is futures-based. They also have an Ethereum ETF filing. And then also on the line with me, is Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale Investments, who is the world's largest digital asset manager. Uh, they currently offer 15 investment products, about $40 billion in assets. And I'll say we don't know for sure whether Grayscale has a live Bitcoin ETF filing. It is possible they filed confidentially. But what we do know is they've publicly stated they are 100% committed to converting the very popular Grayscale Bitcoin Trust ticker GBTC into an ETF. So with that, Jan, Dave, thank you for joining me this week. Thanks very Good to much. Be here. Great to be here, Nate. Okay, so we were originally going to do this podcast live on the main stage at Inside ETFs in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, unfortunately, that conference was canceled with the uh, COVID concerns. I know we're all very disappointed about that. I would much rather be on a beach right now. However, we're making the best of the situation. And what, what I'd like to do is start with a brief update from each of you on where you think the SEC currently stands on Bitcoin ETF approval. And I'll set the table just a little bit here, uh, just because I can't help myself. I, I want to mention the SEC has been evaluating Bitcoin ETFs since 2013, eight years now. My oldest daughter was in first grade at the time. She's now a, a freshman in high school. It's unbelievable. I'll also add that back in early August, SEC Chair uh, Gary Gensler, he seemed to message that an ETF holding Bitcoin futures could be a path uh, towards approval. We then saw a rush of futures-based uh, ETF filings from ETF issuers. But Jan, I'll start with you. Where do you think the SEC currently stands on a Bitcoin ETF? Uh, well, I think uh, they don't think of it that way. I think they, uh, they think that they're comfortable 
first of all, that Bitcoin is not a security. A lot of their energy, you know, we're going to talk about Bitcoin ETFs. I think that's like five or 10 percent of what they're focused on. I think what they're really focused on is how many of these thousands of tokens out there are securities. So, look, the good news is it seems that Bitcoin is getting the green light as not being a security, uh, which is which is step number one. And step number two is that the uh, Bitcoin futures are um, acceptable within uh, product funds regulated by the SEC, whether that be mutual funds or ETFs. So that's what they've said. I don't think they're stretched to do product design, if you will, and say the futures-based Bitcoin ETF is, is the best thing out there. Um, I, don't think that's, I, I don't think you can necessarily draw that conclusion. So maybe that's a little bit pedantic, but that's, I think, where they're at right now. When you mention everything the SEC has on their plate right now, just in terms of regulating crypto as a whole, and we can put ETFs aside, and then you look at everything else on Gensler's plate. We can talk about payment for order flow with a Robinhood situation and uh, you know some of the other stuff that's occurred this year. Uh, Jan, do you think that a Bitcoin ETF has fallen down the priority list? Um, actually, I think it's marginally risen on their priority list only because I think uh, they don't want to, and this is pure speculation, but um, and since they're allowing Bitcoin within 40 Act mutual funds, right, there, there's certainly a level of comfort there. They can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? That's number one. Um, and number two is, I mean, they're slamming DeFi. They're slamming offshore exchanges. Uh, they're slamming lending products like they did with Coinbase. So, you know, you have to be okay with something. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, what's so bad with Bitcoin at this point with an with a, with a ETF, whether it's futures-based or not? So that's why I kind of think, why are they fighting that fight? is kind of my sense. But um, again, I, I'm not saying they've greenlit anything. I just kind of think it's actually probably something that's got a little bit more momentum than it did a year ago. Dave, let me go to you. I know Grayscale has had a sure. lot of interaction with the SEC. Where do you yep. think the SEC currently stands on a Bitcoin ETF? So I'll, I'll layer into what you know Jan had to say and you know add a, a little bit of kind of patina to the conversation, if you will, uh, and and in saying that they also, you know, through, through Gensler's comments, which again, were, you know, at an event that he was speaking at, um, just signaled that, you know, the 40 act, uh, construct and, you know, the reality of the futures being on an exchange that is, you know, CFTC regulated or two additional protections, um, that you know he flagged and highlighted to be important in you know his consideration to have the SEC staff reviewing applications for new Bitcoin related ET, you know ETFs. Um, you know, for, for everyone, obviously, you know, 40 Act products hold securities, um, and you know, 33 Act products hold you know commodities, um, and so many 33 Act you know, filings had been put in front of the commission for, you know, spot or physical, I'm using finger, finger quotes right now, physical uh, Bitcoin products. Um, and so the shift to a 40 act product holding a future, um, which, um, 
you know, which which Gensler, you know, through his comments, Chair Gensler through his comments signaled um, a little bit more comfort for the staff to review those applications. Well, and do I guess do you agree with that? You know, one thing I struggle a little bit with is if the the SEC believes Bitcoin spot prices are somehow uh, they they're subjected to manipulation. I feel like that would impact futures prices as well. Like, I don't understand how futures would be immune from that. I feel like futures and spot go hand in hand. And I'll I'll add to that, you know, the company line we've heard over and over again from the SEC are these concerns around fraud and manipulation in the underlying Bitcoin spot market. They've also indicated they want surveillance sharing agreements in place with regulated markets of significant size. Uh, Dave, in your opinion, I mean, are these still real issues? Are these big enough issues for the SEC to prevent a physical Bitcoin ETF from coming to market? So, so it, it, those are points I was just about to also add. Um, so the notion around, you know, essentially, if you were to sum up a lot of the disapproval orders or kind of the commentary coming out of the commission over the past several years in terms of their review of applications that came before the SEC and the staff is, is just that, that, you know, understanding and having comfort that the underlying spot markets were not susceptible to fraud and manipulation um, are key considerations, and then also ensuring that there are surveillance agreements in partnership with the exchanges that, you know, the executions are essentially being, being you know, where those transactions are happening, kind of underlying that derivative product, the ETF. Um, you know, it, the logic that I struggle with is if the commission is comfortable with the futures market, inherently the futures market is based upon the spot market, and so, to be really clear, I'm not anti-Bitcoin futures product at all. I think it's a great step in the right direction. I think that having a Bitcoin futures product in the market, you know, kind of adds, um, um, you know, adds some, um, you, you know, diversity to to the overall, you know, kind of ecosystem, Bitcoin ecosystem. I think it adds to the liquidity profile of the overall Bitcoin ecosystem. I, I just believe that there should be both in the marketplace, um, allowing for investors to choose their exposure and i heard you know tom Lydon say say that you know in in earlier portion of your your segment which is you know look etfs have long been an opportunity for investors to exercise choice and so let's allow them to exercise choice so the basic logic of i'm not okay with an etf that's a derivative product based on the underlying spot bitcoin market but i am okay with an etf product that's based on a futures product that's derivative of the spot market that logic to me i struggle with and so um you know in instances where there's reliable storage of a commodity um like gold you know a physical you know etf or a physical you know product has been commercially very successful um and the kind of futures based products have been kind of less successful and that's through investor choice and that's through um, you know, kind of areas of complexity around the product, and we can get into that a little bit later. So I don't want to get ahead of ahead of the conversation. But um, I'm not anti Bitcoin futures ETF. I'm just suggesting that you know I scratch my head on the logic. Jan, anything you would add to this conversation around futures-based Bitcoin Fs, uh, ETFs versus physical? I know Van Eck has filings for both, and I'm not asking you to speak to those filings directly, but just at a higher level, any thoughts that you would add here? Um, I mean, I guess I would agree with Dave that, um, you know, to separate a spot market from a futures market is is a little bit of a false distinction. But I think there were policy concerns that the regulators broadly and the SEC had in mind around crypto and Bitcoin 
over the last five years. I'll just throw out some of them. Number one, uh, KYC. Uh, they, you know, they were really afraid of a lot of criminal activity going through the largest exchanges. So they've pushed all of the exchanges um, in, in conjunction with prosecutions by New York State to identify their customers. Secondly, I think they're a lot closer to the exchanges. They felt, you know, the underlying spot exchanges, I should say, like with Coinbase now being an SEC registrant um, and, and obviously a lot of interaction with them and Gemini behind the scenes. I think they feel comfortable with the exchanges. I think there was a, also a concern that so much of the Bitcoin mining and trading was happening in Asia, which felt risky to them. And lastly, uh, obviously, the use of Bitcoin as ransomware. So I know it wasn't literally in the language of their denial notices, but um, I, I do think that the, a lot of those things have, have gone away for a variety of different reasons. Do both of you think Gensler is actually calling the shots here, or do you think that uh, it's above his uh, pay grade, so to speak, and that this is more of a political football with, with Congress and higher-ups at D.C.? Jan, any thoughts on that? you feel like Gensler's hands are tied at all here? Well, I mean, he explicitly pointed to congressional action, right, um, earlier this year, asking for regulation. And, and I think maybe because it was how the, the language in the infrastructure bill happened, which I won't get into, but basically he's claimed jurisdiction by calling every token a security. And so um, I think, again, He's he's inserting himself with or without some of the, the uh, congressional OK. So uh, I, I think that makes him a little bit more comfortable in uh, in taking action here. Dave, do you agree with that? Yeah, I don't have I, I, I don't have anything to suggest that there's something. We, you know, I don't have any insight or we haven't gotten any insight or intelligence that something is happening kind of above above chair chair Gensler. And um we get the sense that some of his comments that he's made, not only at the Aspen conference, but but subsequently, um, you know, are are certainly his thoughts. He's a very thoughtful guy. He's a very intelligent guy in the space, um, and so we get the sense that that you know he's in full control of of kind of the the, the SEC kind of policy making and and decision making. All right. Let's say the SEC does finally get comfortable with a Bitcoin ETF, whether futures based or, or physical. We'll leave that aside. One thing that I'm absolutely fascinated with is how the SEC might go about approving all of these Bitcoin ETF filings. And I, I tweeted something out last week. So I count right now eight of the top 14 ETF issuers as having filed a Bitcoin ETF. Obviously, that includes VanEck. Uh, Dave, that doesn't include Grayscale, but I expect Grayscale to, to clearly be a major player here. Do either of you have strong views on how the SEC should go about approving these filings? Uh, should it be first come, first serve? Should they approve them all at once? Uh, how should they go about this? Jan, I'll, I'll go to you first on this. Um, well, I, I would say there's two regimes uh, out there, uh, and the traditional one is the, the first to file. Um, and I think that's what the industry generally relies on, and that's how a gold uh, bullion ETF was approved, and it was pretty transparent who was first and, uh, and how that process moved forward. I think the second kind of regime um, uh, that's possible is a public announcement, which is tantamount to a green light. So like Chairman Gensler's talk in Aspen to potentially a futures-based product. 
so um, I think those are the two regimes. I guess I would favor the for having been an early filer for a physical <laughs> ETF. I'd obviously favor that, but I mean, I, I think that's pretty transparently self-interested. But I also think that's in the tradition of the industry. So um, anyway, so th- that would be my two cents on this. Dave, uh, what are your thoughts yeah. here? Yeah, I think I think I would agree with with Beyond that you know, kind of first to file, first to approve um, is is kind of what, what, you know, if history is any predictor of the future, I think certainly in in novel, you know, exchange-traded product exposure, kind of coming to market, um, that's been the case. And additionally, I think, you know, another good example of it, although it's not product-specific, it's kind of ETF-relevant in terms of the several different uh, flavors or, or varieties of the not not fully transparent, actively managed structures out there. Um, you know, those were not kind of approved in, you know, you know, in, um, in, in some sort of kind of, um, you know, at the same time. Um, one of the things that I would also point to is, you know, there's, there's kind of a different approach there that we could think about, which is a little bit akin to scenario number two or regime number two, two that, that Jan was mentioning around the public announcement. You know, when you think about, um, some of the leveling of the playing field as it pertains to exemptive relief, um, you know, through through the ETF rule kind of being approved, you could imagine a scenario where, you know, there's there's some sort of more grand or or more structured approach to you know letting the industry and letting the world know that that the SEC is in fact ready for for this approval, um, and they essentially just put a put a stake in the ground in terms of, okay, here's the disclosures that we need. Here's where we need to get comfortable. There will likely be some, you know, public documentation um, around, you know, filings that have kind of, you know, secured that type of disclosure. And here's the date that we're going to be comfortable with, you know, you know, extending approvals for these products. And it allows people to, and firms to get in line and, and make those appropriate filings and disclosures. So uh, it, it's hard to handicap which way it's going to go it seems to me if i you know if i was forced to to pick one i would say it would be you know sequential in nature it, it kind of follows statute a little more easily um and so that's the route that i would that i would suggest dave with grayscale obviously you're in a unique position and that mm-hmm. you you already offer gbtc again nearly 30 mm-hmm. billion dollars invested in that product the hope is to to convert it mm-hmm. into an etf are you able to talk at all about that process like what would a conversion look like at a high level yeah sure i'm 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 happy to um and we we have been very public um about our our intent and desire to convert gbtc into an etf when when you know regulatory you know, when the SEC kind of permits such a transfer. Interestingly, I think a lot of times I hear people speak about this and, and they kind of equate it to a mutual fund conversion. Um, and, and while that's not, you know, entirely um, inaccurate, it's a, it's a little bit different in the sense that when this product was initially uh, conceived and thought about, um, it, it absolutely had every intention to 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 be to be built, um, you know, in, in, in the same way that, that GLD was built. And so a kind of a grant or trust structure in the 33 act in the form of an exchange traded product. And so, you know, we're, we have gone down the path of, you know, getting as close as we possibly can get to creating, you know, an EPS 
Um, and so we, we, we started off, you know, the product starts off as a private placement and then over time it becomes a public quotation that's, you know, essentially, you know, listed, quoted and able to be traded on the OTC markets. Um, you know, then we, you know, file with the SEC to become an SEC, um, you know, registered company. So we're filing AKs and 10Ks and, and really giving a tremendous amount of kind of voluntary disclosure around the product. And that last component is, um, you know, through a through a fairly simple regulatory filing to kind of update and amend the product so that it, it can simultaneously allow for creations and, and redemptions, uh, thereby essentially mimicking the exact structure that, that GLD has. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, we intend for it to be uh, a seamless and frictionless process for our current investors. Um, and have been, you know, pretty public about our advocacy for um, the desire to convert convert our product, um, you know, to to a, a GLD like structure. Dave, I, I think as you're well aware, um, I've used GBTC as part of my argument for why a Bitcoin ETF should exist, just because GBTC can trade at meaningful premiums and discounts. And to be mm-hmm. crystal clear here, I, I always say this, but GBTC does exactly what it's supposed to do. There's nothing nefarious going yep. on here. I think Grayscale yep. has been highly transparent about the product. But the fact is, it can trade at meaningful premiums and discounts. And yep. I will tell you, I, I've personally been surprised by how many investors I've come across who actually think GBTC is an ETF. The question that I have for you, though, is why do you think the SEC is comfortable having a product like GBTC out in the wild, but not a Bitcoin ETF? Do you have any view on, on that? Yeah, I, I actually, you know, it's a it's a great question. I mean, full 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 candor, um, as many, many as I know, you both know. I've I've only been here for a couple of months now, and so there are. That's a question I don't have the answer to, um, and it's a good question because ultimately, at the end of the day, um, you know, we want to advocate for our investors, and you know, our investors' voice has been, um, you know, telling us their their, their desire for. Um, you know, a physical ETF and a conversion of GBTC. And I'm certain that part of that desire is is to allow the actual product to trade more closely to the intrinsic value of the assets that we're holding on, the, on their behalf. So so I think that we would all agree that uh, a spot ETF will allow for a very effective creation redemption mechanism that, you know, historically has proven to be, um, you know, a great way for, the holdings of an exchange-traded product to tie very closely to the intrinsic value. So um, that secondary market trading price to to correlate very tightly to to the underlying assets. Uh, Jan, sort of on this topic, I'll ask you, uh, given that the SEC has been reluctant to allow a Bitcoin ETF, in my mind, one of the side effects is that we've seen this uh, proliferation of so-called blockchain ETFs. So ETFs seeking to offer exposure to crypto miners, uh, companies owning Bitcoin on their balance sheet, those sorts of things. And VanEck yeah. does have an, an offering here, the VanEck Digital Transformation ETF, ticker symbol DAPP. Uh, I guess two questions here. One, do you think these products would exist if the SEC had just allowed a Bitcoin ETF a, a few years back? And, and then two, given how early it is in the crypto space, I'm curious how well you think these blockchain ETFs actually capture the opportunity. How, how peer play are these? So, uh, listen, I think that blockchain ETFs would have existed anyway. Uh, we, I really think that the big investor message of 2021 regarding crypto is that Bitcoin 
is not the same as all the other tokens that are out there. Bitcoin is really, in my mind, a gold type of competitor, and that's uh, that's its use case. Uh, there are a lot of other tokens, protocols, software projects, whatever you want to call them, companies that are offering functionality that is extremely valuable and extremely disruptive, to, especially to, to finance. And so, um, you know, this, uh, this type of ETF just invests in the pu- companies that have gone public, like a Coinbase, uh, but there are a lot of other companies, both pub- you know, on the private side, um, that trade as tokens, and Grayscale has some good wrappers on those, that, that are really valuable and that have appreciated a lot. So, uh, so I think it's, it's a real part of a disruptive trend that bears looking at whether DAP um, is the best vehicle or not. Now, DAP stands for Decentralized Application, and, and I think you know, when Coinbase went public, it uh, sort of meant that there were enough public companies, if you will, to get a pure play, which is what Van Eck is all about. The, the last point I'd make about DAP is the market cap of the DAP constituents are $250 billion. If, if you think about our, uh, our premier ETF, GDX, the market cap of gold miners globally is 300. So 250 versus 300. So DAP is capturing a non, you know, non-negligible part of the equity universe. Okay, with our remaining time, I want to look to the future a little bit and then also try to uh, get some predictions out of both of you. I don't know how uh, hard that's going to be. I'm going to try. But let me let me start by playing a little uh, devil's advocate here. I think we need a foil since we're all pro-Bitcoin ETF, uh, so I'll serve that role. Um, what happens if every major brokerage offers crypto trading and custody over the next few years? So I'm talking Charles Schwab, Fidelity, E-Trade, all of them. Do you think that kills the business case for a Bitcoin ETF? Uh, Jan, I'll start with you. I think it dents it. And, and frankly, I don't think uh, the case for a Bitcoin ETF, I think it will be a great product. But I, I don't think it's going to be the blowout kind of ETF that people are imagining. So uh, uh, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. You can't trade ETFs 24-7 like you can uh, most crypto assets. Uh, and you're already getting a lot of the tax reporting out of the Coinbase's of the world. So, uh, but listen, I think it's better from a regulatory perspective to have a regulated vehicle, uh, and I think there'll be more transparency. And I think it will drive pricing down for investors, which will be great for investors. Dave, um, I'll take a little bit of a different different tack there. I think it it would be fantastic for the overall ecosystem, and I think it would would lend more credibility for a broader user base so look you know just like in 19 you know uh, sorry 1999 2000 2001 um you know people in their retirement accounts were piecing together you know sector spider you know asset allocation models right It, it was too exotic it was too new um and and now almost everybody probably has you know some sort of kind of sector allocation with an etf i think you know, having um, an ETF will be a great source of kind of, you know, comfort or credibility around a product that people are comfortable with and understand. And so they'll utilize that as the vehicle through which they can reliably gain access to to, to Bitcoin and, and likely other cryptocurrencies and, and digital assets. And so I think um, I think there'll always be a spot for, for an ETF that's kind of the wrapper through which people gain that exposure. 
Um, Jan makes some great points about kind of the flexibility that kind of direct investment would offer. Um, but I think that's going to be something that's a little bit cumbersome and, and maybe a bit, you know, kind of exotic for um, the more kind of conservative investor. And when I mean conservative investor, you know, those that are that are used to kind of, um, you know, kind of gaining their exposure through through wrappers and products that they're most comfortable with. And Dave, can you just expand a little bit more on some of the potential benefits of a Bitcoin ETF uh, as you talk about that there? Because the most common rebuttal I always hear against a, a Bitcoin ETF is that Bitcoin is easy to access. Going back to my point with at some point being available at Schwab. But, you know, right now anyone can set up a Coinbase account or go to Cash App or, or go to Robinhood and they can buy Bitcoin. What, why exactly do we need an ETF? What do you think are the most important benefits? Yeah, look, I mean, it's really easy to buy gold as well, um, especially if you live in New York City and go to 47th Street and find a, a, you know, kind of a, you know, some dealer in the Diamond District to go and find the price on your own and source it. And, you know, if you want to do it that way, that's that's great um, and, and more power to you. But the reality is through kind of ease and, you know, um, and kind of consolidating your your kind of investment kind of management and, you know, your comfort with working with whatever particular broker that you're working with and, you know, whatever, you know, wealth management platform you're on. And, and frankly, forget about it as the, the, you know, end investor, think about advisors, right? And the advisors need to have the opportunity to be able to reliably explain something to their end clients. And, you know, the ETF industry, certainly on and his team, um, and, 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 you know, the firms that I work for and all the other ETF issuers and exchanges and indexers have been long trying to advocate for the ETF. I think we're over that hump and people believe and understand um, what an ETF is and, and why it's reliable. And we've kind of, you know, debunked all the myths over the past, you know, 15 years about them being, you know, weapons of mass destruction in, in the financial markets. And so now, you know, advisors are, are largely very comfortable with telling the ETF story and can reliably explain what an ETF is to their end clients. And so, you know, advisors are going to be comfortable in using a wrapper that they have long, you know, been utilizing as their kind of asset allocation vehicles for their clients. And it'll be the perfect opportunity for them to offer, you know, a new asset class and a new exposure to their clients in a very familiar vehicle. And I think that that's the biggest difference right now that we're facing, even in the regulatory conversations. You know, Jan can speak, you know, as eloquently as anybody in the industry about how a conversation over the past 15, 20 years has been in terms of, you know, engaging with the division of investment management or engaging with a division of trading and markets with a new novel exposure or index methodology. Um, you know, in an ETF wrapper, it was a two-pronged conversation, one, let's talk about the exposure and let's talk about the asset class we're putting in the wrapper and two, let's continue to defend the ETF. Now I think the SEC is largely very comfortable with, you know, the ETF wrapper uh, as an investment vehicle. And now it's really just a conversation around the asset that we're putting into it. It's a big difference than many of the conversations we've had over the past couple of decades. Just a couple of minutes left here. What about the higher level argument that, an ETF goes against the core ethos of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is supposed to be decentralized, permissionless, not wrapped in a traditional financial vehicle. Uh, any thoughts on that line of thinking? Uh, Jan, I'll, I'll toss that one your way. 
Look, I think centralized solutions just provide convenience. And, and Coinbase is centralized. I mean, all the trading that happens in Bitcoin on, on Coinbase does not happen on the Bitcoin uh, you know, network or the Bitcoin blockchain. So, uh, you know, centralization will be in finance for a super long period of time. But I look at the open source uh, blockchain database technology as kind of the the yeast that is accelerating fintech disruption of existing players, whether it's lending, trading, or anything. And uh, so... I, I think you're right, but um, I don't think we'll be getting rid of centralization for a long time. I think the, the one comment I'd add to what David was saying was just, it's just sad that even if we got a Bitcoin ETF approved, that there's so much happening in in the uh, digital asset space, smart contracts, what have you, that still would not be available in ETF form. And that's, uh, you know, that's, Anyway, that that's the state of reality, but a lot of the exciting stuff um, is, is still has a long ways to go before it's in the ETF. Well, I keep saying the innovation that's occurring in the crypto space is absolutely mind-boggling to me. I think about the intellectual capital being devoted to the space, just just the sheer amount of talent and resources going in there. The the innovation is staggering, and. You compare that to the SEC. SEC isn't doing anything wrong. I just think they're having a very difficult time keeping up with this lightning speed pace of innovation in, in crypto. So I think this challenge will be with us for a while. And I, I guess on that note, let's close with some predictions here. Uh, I have a feeling how this is going to go. I'm not optimistic on how you will answer these, but I have to ask you, uh, and Jan, I'll put you on the spot first. When do you think the SEC will approve a futures-based Bitcoin ETF? And when do you think they'll approve a, a physical Bitcoin ETF? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, I, I'm sorry to be, I'm not trying to be wishy-washy, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think we're running out of time this year. <laughs> Let me put it that way. <laughs> state, the, state, state the obvious. I wouldn't bet a steak dinner on that. And Dave, I know you always like to say it's a matter of when, not if. Uh, I'm going to try not to let you off the hook that easy. Uh, any any predictions here on a futures-based ETF and a physical Bitcoin ETF? Um, I don't see. Uh, I, I I will go as far to say that um, that that I believe the the futures the futures-based approval is almost a binary scenario where it's either going to happen, you know, in the kind of October November time frame, or or it just doesn't happen. Um, that that the, the the commission will either kind of get comfortable with things and, and approve or, or or just not, and I think on the physical the physical ETF um, will be some sort of derivative of the timing associated with the disclosure and you know all the conversations with with the futures based product, um, and so it will certainly be some time after that, um, you know, but. But it's really, I mean, look, it's really hard. It's really hard to handicap. Um, and and we're, I believe, we're as close to the conversation as, as, as anyone can possibly be. Um, and we're dedicating, you know, resources to ensure that we're, you know, we're, we're as informed. And, and we've had awesome conversations with the commission for a long time predating my joining the organization. And we, we continue to have good conversations. Um, but that doesn't put us in any better position to kind of handicap timing. 
Well, I've got to say, uh, neither of you are making me feel any more optimistic. I don't know if you're aware, but uh, I unfortunately made a bet with myself at the beginning of the year. I predicted that we would see a Bitcoin ETF in 2021. If that doesn't happen, I have to eat a dollar bill live on, on camera and then also stop tweeting about Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, I, I'm not feeling really great about that bet. But in any event, Jan, Dave, I really appreciate your time this week. So glad we can make this happen. I certainly wish you the best of luck on this uh, arduous adventure of bringing a Bitcoin ETF to market. You know I'm cheering for you. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much. You should put a hedge on, Nate, somehow. I don't know what the hedge would be, but you should put it on. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, Jan Van Eck, CEO of ETF Issuer Van Eck, and Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, two more excellent guests for you. I'll be joined by Katie Koch, co-head of Fundamental Equity for Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We're going to look at a number of their uh, equity ETFs. And then Harley Bassman, a.k.a. the Convexity Maven, also managing partner of Simplify ETFs, We'll talk the Fed, interest rates, markets, should be a lot of fun. Until then, have a great week, everyone.